Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. All right, Reed, I'm excited to bring this interview to our audience. I had the opportunity, the pleasure to talk with Lieutenant Joey Langford. He's one of the first people that I met when I showed up as an instructor for Air Force ROTC. I got back from my initial training uh, and shortly thereafter he received his commission and then took off for Pensacola and undergraduate CISO training. Awesome. It's a small world, right? When you run into your students around the Air Force. Yeah. And he reached out to me. He found out about the podcast. He said that his experience at UCT has been transformational, especially because he was one of those that had no idea what CISOs do prior to showing up uh, for his first day of training. Yeah, I think that's going to be a pretty common experience. I admitted I did not know that that was a job, right? I thought, hey, you're wearing a flight suit. You must be a pilot. Right. Um, and I think Joey does a great job of breaking it down. There's a lot in there, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing it with the audience. Yeah. So with that, we will turn it over to Lieutenant Joseph Langford. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade, and today I am joined by Joseph Langford, a CISO student down at Naval Air Station in Pensacola with the uh, Air Force down here. All right. We're going to use first names today. Uh, you're going to be Joseph. I'm going to be Colin. Is that cool? Yeah, that works. I'll probably Joey. I go by Joey. All right. We'll, we'll call you Joey then. H- have they given you a call sign yet? Not yet. You get that after you graduate your follow-on training with the... Uh, your operational jet. That's good because that also means that you haven't done anything stupid enough to earn one yet. Correct. Well done. Not yet. <laughs> sure that day will come. <laughs> it will come. Absolutely. But that's all right. It's part of being an officer. That's part of being in the air force. You got to make those mistakes, learn from them and own it. Have it become part of you. It's good stuff. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Welcome to the podcast, Joey. We're excited to have you, especially to have someone who is currently undergoing the training that's still in the pipeline, in this case specific to the Combat Systems Officer or CISO career field. What is your actual AFSC? Uh, So I will be a 12F, so 12 Foxtrot for the fighters. So we've got uh, 12F, and then we have 12R for reconnaissance, uh, 12N for navigators, then 12S for the AFSOC combat systems officers. All right. But you haven't tracked to a specific airframe yet, right? I have. I'm actually syllabus complete down here and I'm going to graduate and get my wings uh, on February 21st. Oh, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks very much. Which airframe are you going to? I'm going to the F-15E, the Strike Eagle out at Seymour Johnson. Awesome. So you're going to end up at a SJ is that, and that, that's still a part of your training. You're, you're still going to be in the pipeline there. That's correct. So the B course, it's about nine months of basic training in the F-15. And then following that course, 
you are assigned to an operations squadron. So they've got six operations squadron for the Strike Eagle. There's two at Mountain Home, uh, two at Seymour Johnson, and then two at RAF Lake and Heath. And then you've got about three to four months of mission qual training at the ops squadron before you're finally, you know, pipeline complete, ready to deploy and go to war. Awesome. You have a, an idea where, where you're going to go? Do you get a choice in that? You have a choice, but it needs to be Air Force. I mean, I'd prefer to sure. be in Mountain Home, but I'll go wherever they send me. Really? You want to choose Idaho over England? Absolutely. Yeah. That's an easy choice for me. <laughs> okay. I can't say that everybody would choose that, but Hope my that's all right. The same way. They all want to go to England. I'll let them go there. I'll just go to Idaho. Okay. Well, if, if you stick around long enough, I'm sure you'll end up at Lake and Heath at some point. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, let's backtrack just a little bit. Let's learn a little bit more about you before we uh, take a deep dive into uh, the CISO life. So why don't you tell us where you're from, yeah, where, what your background is, what you studied uh, in college, how you got your commission, all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, sure thing. So I grew up all over the country. I've lived in 14 states. New Mexico was the longest. Uh, my dad was in the Navy. He was a Navy nuke. Uh, got out and then he was a nuclear contractor. So we went to different nuclear sites around the nation. And then I went off to college at uh, first BYU-Idaho and then transferred to BYU-Provo. Did ROTC out of BYU. Uh, did it 5-5. I studied exercise and wellness and I don't use that degree at all for my training, but had to have the degree in order to commission. And it was just personal interest. And knew that I wanted to fly, went up for the rated board and found out I was going to be a combat systems officer. And at the time I had no idea really what that meant. So hoping to answer some of those questions for, for other cadets and members of the Air Force. Awesome. When, when did you graduate? May, sorry, April 2017. That was when I graduated. Okay. And then uh, how long did you have to wait bef between when you graduated received your commission and when you actually went on to uh, on the active duty uh, that was the next day yeah so i commissioned on the 29th went active on the 30th and reported to pensacola october 4th wow the, the air force really needed you yeah end of the fiscal year stuff so i was just hey it's now or never so oh, okay that was that was me yeah so not everybody gets as lucky as you they there are plenty out there that, that have to wait and and this is specific to uh, Air Force ROTC, plenty of, of our new lieutenants out of ROTC that have to wait up, you know, sometimes up to 365 days, a full year yep. before the, they go on to active duty. So pretty awesome for you that you were able to do it immediately the next day. Yeah, it was pretty quick. Cool. Let's talk about your experience in Air Force ROTC for a little bit, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the CISO stuff. Got it. So Talk to us about your experience as a cadet. What did you enjoy? What did you hate? How did it help you? How did it not help you? What, what was your experience? Uh, so my, my experience as a cadet, I mean, I probably am not the shining example of a cadet that should be chosen or to speak with. I had, I mean, at first I was a little lackluster where it's like, okay, I'm doing ROTC. Uh, am I sure about this? I started school studying engineering and thought I was like, I was more interested in engineering than the military. Uh, and then as I continued going to ROTC, I became more interested in the military than engineering. Uh, so that was a good swap. And it was, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I had the attitude of like, okay, I, I need to complete this program as a cadet in order to get to 
the officer pipeline. Uh, I enjoyed really being at Dead 855. Like the caliber of cadets there is outstanding at Brigham Young University and UVU. So I enjoyed that association a lot. Uh, but most of the time I was, I mean, maybe sad to say it was more the side event while I was going through school and working to try to take care of life and family. I got married in college, so I was just trying to work and have enough money to be a poor college kid. Right. Typical college student struggles. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, wow, I made, like I lived off of $6,000 last year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, I'm, I'm happy those days are behind me. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> well, th that's good to know. I mean, one thing about uh, Air Force ROTC is that, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, that uh, Air Force ROTC is not uh, the end-all be-all, that it is important for your training as, as you're preparing for a profession in, in the Air Force. But at the same time, you know, it has to take a back seat to your, your academics, right? Right. So it, it needs to be the most important thing and it can't be the most important thing for you to succeed academically. And you, just, you play kind of that juggling match of which one's got priority this week. That was my experience. So let's, let's parse that out a little bit. How was it when, uh, when you were a cadet that you were able to balance your academics, first as an engineering student, then once you switched over to exercise science, I'm sure things got a little bit easier, but, but at the same time, you were moving up into your, your junior and your senior core. And then also, you moved into the upper class of the cadets, which required a, a significant more time commitment and effort. How did you balance those two things at the same time as also being married and carrying responsibilities outside of both school and ROTC? Uh, so, I mean, I think you become comfortable being tired where uh, you just start to, you, you make things happen instead of, you know, putting things off. I really appreciated the upperclassmen experience when I was able to actually work with the underclassmen. So, I mean, I was like a cadet squadron commander and a cadet flight commander, and that was really rewarding. Um, I, had a, I had a foot surgery my senior year, and so that, that had me on the sidelines a lot for most of the cadet activities, but it was cool just to be there to be able to mentor. Uh, and then being able to actually meet all the different requirements Looking back as a college student, you don't really have that much responsibility as you think you do. Um, but I mean, often, I mean, things were, things were accomplished due to late night study sessions, staying up super late, writing papers and just getting it done. And, and if you show up tired one day to class because you were working on something else, you just got through it. Um, and it's, you know, they say here in flight training, uh, they've got, you know, two different metaphors. One is you have an iceberg that's only so big and you want to keep as many penguins on as you can. And it's just, what's the most important penguin for me to keep track of this week? You know, the next event, okay, I've got a, I've got, I have a test in this class, so I need to focus on this one and I'll rescue that penguin later. But right now I need to hold on to this penguin. Um, and the other one they use is just, you know, you're in a river and there's a whole bunch of alligators coming at you and you're only concerned about the next alligator that's going to kill you. So you just got to, one at a time, one at a time. And, you know, at the end, you know, you've actually accomplished what you set out to do. Yeah. So that's really good stuff. So my question now is like, how did Air Force ROTC and your experiences there 
train you or prepare you for what you're going to be doing in, in UCT? Or maybe how did ROTC not prepare you and what do you think you could have done differently? I think it prepared me really well, uh, especially BYU, Brigham Young University, where it's a pretty rigorous academic institution. And so, you know, everybody there is sharp and your professors have super high expectations. So you learn to perform to a high level uh, in your area of responsibility. And so that was very helpful when it came time to actually start, you know, the military training pipeline and dedicated, hey, you need to be, you need to understand this material quickly. I certainly feel that Brigham Young University prepared me really well for that. And then as a cadet, you had, not only do you have to learn how to do college, but you're going to have some other job. Uh, so it kind of helps you spread your focus out a little bit more and keep a few of those penguins on the iceberg. Yeah, that's good. So it's not just Air Force ROTC. It's not just your academics at the university, but the combination of the two actually work together really well to prepare you for the UCT pipeline or something similar. Right. And it's nice because in college, you learn how to kind of juggle and spread your focus where, I mean, I'm studying exercise physiology, which has nothing to do with Air Force ROTC. And then when I get to, you know, UCT, it's just, hey, we want you to focus on one thing. And as a cadet, you're used to focusing on three or four things. And then when somebody says, hey, we're going to pay you to just focus on one thing, you can do that really well. That's awesome. Good. Yeah. I like how you explain that. Well, good. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say about your time at BYU or in ROTC? Anything uh, that you think would be valuable to uh, cadets who are currently going in the program or maybe someone who's thinking about joining? Anything you want to offer on that end? Uh, so I would think, you know, about every time that you're wondering what on earth is the purpose of this or why am I a cadet? Why am I putting up with this? Uh, it is 100% worth it where, uh, I mean, being an officer in the air force is an outstanding opportunity. Uh, it's been a fantastic experience for me and my wife. Uh, we've had, you know, my daughter was born here at Naval air station, Pensacola, and just to see the support that's there for families is, is outstanding. So when you're in, you know, one of those cadet experiences where it's like, man, this is stupid and doesn't make sense. I don't want to wake up at this time or I don't understand why cadets have to do this or do that, it is 100% worth it. Uh, I can't believe that I get paid to have as much fun as I do. That's really good. So for all of those out there in our audience that are either going through ROTC right now or thinking about joining, suck it up. It'll get better. <laughs> it, it 100% does. And I mean, I definitely... You know, it was one of the cadets saying, what on earth is the purpose of this? But I'm so glad I went through those years as a cadet to, uh, to get to where I am now. Yeah, and let's also say uh, that, just own up to the fact that Air Force ROTC is not perfect. The, the cadre who are instructors uh, at the different detachments are not perfect. Yes, they are officers. Yes, they carry the, the weight and the responsibility of the commission, but that does not guarantee that they are going to be the, the best possible people on planet earth. They've at least gone through the training. They have sworn an oath to support and defend the constitution. At least they, they have taken an oath to uphold the values of the air force, but they're not going to be perfect. 
and they're certainly not always going to perfectly line up with your personality. You're not always going to get, get along with them. So let's just own up to that and call it what it is. And I, I mean, if I can add just probably one more thing about ROTC and any kind of commissioning source, uh, just that it has to cast such a wide net for all the different responsibilities and things that an officer needs to be aware of that it really can't go deep into any kind of one subject and to again say, hey, that that depth that you are looking for professionally will come in your career, but that, you know, ROTC is not the place necessarily where the Air Force is able to to dive deep into your interests. Yeah, absolutely. It's a starting point. And all of our commissioning sources are designed to give you the tools to begin learning how to grow and develop as an officer. It is not necessarily designed to you know, take that, that rough piece of granite and shape it into the David. That's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to get you pointed in the right direction so that once you do get on active duty, you can continue to grow, continue to develop your leadership style and your understanding of what it means to be a commissioned officer. Absolutely. 100% agree. Great stuff. All right. Okay. Let's talk about the things that are most important to you right now. The reason that you are on this podcast today. What does it mean to be a combat systems officer, specifically a 12 Foxtrot for fighters? So, Joey, over to you. Why does the combat systems officer, the 12 Foxtrot AFSC, exist? So, like going way back when, early days of the Air Force, uh, the airplanes, you know, we didn't have the same sophistication and equipment or whatnot. So, most of the bombers, you know, they had crews, they were crew aircraft where yeah, you had the pilot that flew the airplane where it needed to go, but once you were over Berlin, it was the bombardier's aircraft. And he was the one lining everything up and saying, no, this is my aircraft. We are dropping our bombs here. And then once he's completed the mission, he would say, all right, pilot, get us home. And over time, so we've had navigators, we've had bombardiers, we've had electronic warfare officers, we've had comm officers, we've had reconnaissance officers. And so for forever, it seemed, that was the whole career field was just spread all over the place. And then I think it was in, it was in 2010 that the air force stood up the combat systems officer pipeline down here at Naval air station, Pensacola. And so every single crew position on a jet, that's an officer comes through Naval air station, Pensacola. So whether you are an electronic warfare officer or a navigator or a weapon systems officer or an AFSOC, Sizo, uh, you come to Naval Air Station Pensacola now, and the, so they didn't really know what to call us. So they said, "All right, you're gonna you're gonna be combat systems officers, and then once you've completed this training, we'll call you essentially the mission that you uh, learn to, to implement against the uh, enemy." And so we graduate, and we're only really called Sizos in big Air Force or while we're in training. But then once we've graduated the program, we'll be called a WIZO or an EWO or a NAV uh, or a, an AFSOC guy whenever they're mentioned. But uh, I was attracted to the WIZO pipeline. So my older brother's in, in the Army. He was an airborne sniper uh, for 10 years, and now he's in the Green Beret medic pipeline. And I wanted to be in the jet that was capable of dropping bombs on bad guys to kill bad guys and make sure the good guys came home. And as a weapon systems officer, that is your bread and butter. Uh, so weapon systems officers, uh, you can either be on a B-52, 
So the B-52 has two weapon systems officers that are down in the belly of the beast, and they're, they're controlling the weapons. Uh, so they tell the pilot, hey, we need to get here, but you're getting me here so I can kill the bad guys. Uh, the B-1 has two Wizzos, and they are, again, similar uh, circumstance where they're pilot, this is where we need to go so that I can drop these bombs and I can kill these bad guys. And then we've got uh, the F-15E, the Strike Eagle, uh, where it's just the Wizzo and a pilot. And what's unique about uh, that crew position is uh, you're expected to be able to back up the pilot and you're expected to be, you know, a, a fully qualified aviator. Where in a B-52 and a B-1 and on any other Air Force jet, you know, minus the single seat fighters, there's a pilot and a co-pilot there to make things happen. But as in the F-15, there's a pilot and a Wizzo. So in the back seat, the Wizzo has a full set of flight controls, you know, stick, throttle, rudders. And so, you know, as an F-15 Wizzo, you're expected to be pretty capable of flying that jet as well. And you're not just a, I mean, I would say no Sizzo ever a passenger, but you need to be a capable aviator as an F-15 E Wizzo. Awesome. So a couple of things there is the, the 12 Foxtrot career field, you mentioned a, a, a few different aircraft. Once you track to one specific airframe, do you move to other airframes or are you going to be with the F-15E for your entire career or could you eventually end up with the buff or the bone? Uh, so I'll be an F-15. Uh, so that's a 12F. Uh, also out of the Wizzo pipeline, they'd become a, you know, a 12B Bravo for, for bomber. And then there, there are a number of different exchange programs between the buff and the bone where a bone Wizzo can go to the bone or go to the buff and vice versa. And sometimes it's a permanent shift. Sometimes it's, hey, I'm going to go do one tour with the bones. Or I'm going to go do a tour over here with the buff and then come back. Uh, but there is, uh, in the other career fields, there is some aircraft transference. Uh, if you go to the Strike Eagle, uh, sometimes a, a Strike Eagle Wizzo will go fly with the uh, EA-18 Growlers, the electronic attack aircraft. The Air Force does have one squadron of them. So there's a, there's a few Air Force Growler uh, EWOs that generally come from the Strike Eagle community. Okay. And you didn't mention anything about the B-2. Do they have 12 Bravos as well? or? No, they just have, they've got two pilots. So they've got two pilots in the B-2, and there's only two pilots in the B-21 as well. There's no Wizzos going to the B-21, which that's, that's another conversation, but... It's just going to be pilots for the B-21 coming up. I, I sense some consternation about that. Well, I mean, I think that we add value and we're good at our job. And if the pilot, you know, if you have somebody dedicated specifically to a task, they can become really darn good at it. Uh, I'm sure that the B-2 crews are capable, but it's hey, we can ease off some of the pilot workload, especially in bad guy land, and, you know, be effective in employing ordnance. Okay. Yeah. Let the, the pilot focus on flying the jet while you uh, pay attention to what the bad guy is doing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty tried and true method. Yeah. The air force is two pilots for the B-21. Okay. Now, is there also you know, some you know, friendly competition between the, the 12 F's or the 12 Bravos or even your, your pilot brothers and sisters is there i probably don't have enough experience brushing up between other communities to speak personally i know those coming from the strike eagle community i know there's a bit of a rivalry between the, the strike eagle and the viper because both claim to do everything better than the other jet sure 
And then between the bombers and the fighters, yeah, it's, you know, the buff will say every time it takes off, it's like the seventh most powerful nation in the world, just one B-52 flying around. And it's like, cool, but you don't fly upside down. And it's like, well, I can use the bathroom and just kind of the usual jokes between fighter and non-fighter aircraft. Sure. Well, that's good. Keeps us all sharp. Keeps us you know, excited about our different airframes. Yes. Well, good. So we have a better understanding now why CISOs exist and the various different shred outs. Can we review that again real quick? Yeah, so there's, they just revamped the CISO syllabus here this past year. And I was in the, the third class to go through the new syllabus training pipeline and uh, the first full-size class at that. And I think it might be good just to kind of go through the overall pipeline and what that looks like. As a CISO student showing up day one, what is your life like and what does your training look like? Uh, as you arrive, you know, you in process at the squadron. And the first thing for you to do is to have two TDYs. So you're going to go out to IFT in Pueblo, Colorado. And that is common for, I mean, every Air Force pilot, CISO, and uh, RPA aviator is going to go to IFT, initial flight training at Pueblo, Colorado. And it's about three, three and a half weeks. And we go through the same academics and flight procedures as pilots do. And then we start to specialize where, okay, we have to do more advanced navigation and they start busting out old school whiz wheels, which is like a circular slide rule that you can calculate everything with. And it's, it's crazy how good it is. And you do low level uh, navigation runs in IFT and you do 10 of those as a CISO student where you have to, you know, arrive at each point on time on target. Um, and it's, it's pretty basic. They, like, but at IFT, the CISO flies the majority of the mission. They're getting stick time. They're controlling the aircraft. And what's the aircraft? Oh, it's the mighty Diamond DA-20. I think it's got like 130 horsepower and full throttle. It might hit like 110. Awesome. Uh, so not super exciting, but it is super safe from all the brand new lieutenants. Don't fly directly into the headwind. You might end up going backwards kind of thing. Uh, something like that, yeah. But uh, so you, you go to IFT, yeah, that's about three, three and a half months. If you have weather delays or things like that, it might push you out of, uh, past, a, past a month, but it should be three, three and a half weeks. And then after you complete that, you go to SEER school. So that's survival, evasion, uh, resistance, and escape. And that's like prisoner of war. What happens if you get shot down behind enemy lines stuff? I think that one's 17 or 18 training days. And it's about as much fun as you think it is. Uh, it, it's 10 out of 10 training that I want to have and I never want to have it again. Yep. How'd that rabbit taste? Uh, it, I ate the rabbit. That was wonderful. Good. Did you ask for seconds? I did not. There wasn't that much to go around, <laughs> but, uh, it, it felt like a feast for sure at that time. <laughs> right. <laughs> the other immediately following that you're going to do water survival training at Fairchild. You have to have water survival training in order to go through our pipeline here at Pensacola because we fly over the water every day. Right. So yeah, following uh, IFT, SEER and water survival. Now you're ready to start your training, uh, UCT, and then you class up and you have about two months of navigation academics. And the, the very first thing that you start doing is navigation and denied ops. So you have no GPS, you don't have any of these systems. It's essentially, hey, we're in a conflict with an adversary that can jam everything and we still need you to know how to navigate a jet to wherever you need it to go. 
And so we, we, we run through academics with that. We get some simulator events with that. And then after we've learned kind of those navigation principles where we can navigate in any circumstance, uh, then we go to the T6. And we get uh, every CISO student is going to get six flights in a T6, where the first one is, I mean, they call it the dollar ride, and it's awesome, where you go up, you go out into a MOA. What's a MOA? So that's a military uh, operating airspace. Uh, so we take a T6, and this is where we're introduced to uh, principles of flight and how to recover an aircraft. So say your pilot you know, becomes hypoxic or something like that, you need to know how to recover an aircraft from all attitudes of flight. So you go over, I mean, there's the basic stalls. You know, can you recover an aircraft while you're upside down? And then it's, well, we have gas, we have time. So have some fun in a T6. It's great. An absolute blast. And it's a good kind of litmus test to see, do you like, you know, military aviation where you fly upside down and things like that? Where some people show up really wanting fighters and thinking that being upside down is cool. And then they go do it and they're like, nope, nope, don't want to do that ever again. But it's, that's a cool opportunity to learn just how to safely recover an aircraft and then have some fun. Yeah, so that's a, such a good thing to focus on just for a second that we get so many of these cadets and officer trainees that come in saying, I want to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be, I've wanted to fly fighters my entire life. This is what I want and I'm going to, I'm going to get it. And then they get it. And then they show up at UPT or UCT. They get into that T6 and then they find out, holy crap, I hate this because they've never done it before. Sure. They may have their pr professional pilot's license or they may have, uh, you know, a thousand hours in, in an aircraft, but have they been upside down before? Have they pulled six G's before? Have they ever you know, done anything like that before? So really important for our audience to understand there that you know, this is different than anything that you've ever done before. Yeah, it's not a Cessna 172. And it is, it is awesome. Thank goodness it is not a Cessna 172. The T, I mean, the T6 is a blast. And, and I, I enjoy, you know, raging and yanking and banking. It, it's an awesome opportunity. And every flight, I take fanboy seconds where it's, I'm going to look outside for three seconds right now and just soak in this moment and this experience. Uh, and that's certainly been helpful throughout training. Yeah, good. I'm glad that, that you brought that up. So, yeah, you got five flights just on, you know, navigating and shooting approaches, pretty basic aviation stuff. One more thing. After those uh, six rides, is there a check ride or is every single one of them a check ride? No, definitely not a check ride. This is introducing you to aviation while you're in the aircraft, where our academics and everything is really academics on navigation and not so much flying. Where a pilot, you know, they'll just get tons of sorties and stick times and they've got hours in the pattern or whatnot. We're just thrown straight into the jet and it's like, all right, this is what it feels like. Can you think while airborne? Can you do all that navigation stuff airborne? So it's definitely an introduction to flying. Once the EWO split off from the rest of the class, uh, the remaining SISO uh, students, they go through two more phases of T6 flights where you do, uh, you do five low-level uh, missions where you do, it's exactly what it sounds like, high-speed, low-level. You're navigating to a target at low, uh, low altitude, and you want to make sure that you're there where you need to be and that you're on time. And uh, those are a blast. And then you've got five 
they call them advanced iRides. So it's advanced navigation and you go out and you shoot a number of different approaches and just like, okay, I know how to fly instruments in an aircraft and I have the airmanship to know what's going on as we fly around and I can, uh, I'm, I'm capable in the jet. I know how to suit, like monitor and correct if necessary, uh, navigation and instrument flight procedures. And then once you've completed those, yeah, so there's, you know, a check ride for each of those, a low level and an instrument flight. Then your T6 complete, and then you break off into the other three tracks, uh, which would be special operations, navigator, and weapon systems officer. Uh, so just kind of a quick overview of the, I guess, the missions and the jets that you can go to from that. Uh, special operations. A special operations is CISO City, like CISO's run AFSOC. And so you're going to have uh, AC-130s. So it's CISOs that are in the AC-130s controlling the sensors and the weapons. So you're playing Call of Duty and, you know, doing the AC-130 stuff. That's a CISO that's killing every bad guy that needs to be killed. So in the, in the AC-130, it's not an enlisted position that's running the, the sensors or firing those weapons. It's, a, it's an AFSOC CISO that's doing it. So depending on the variant, because there's, you know, there's the whiskey and now there's the, the J model. And there used to be the uniform as well. They've had a number of different crew iterations. The latest gunship, the J model, it has, uh, there's three aviators on the flight deck. So a pilot, co-pilot, and then an Air Force CISO. And then uh, down below, there's going to be a, an, an AFSOC CISO next to an enlisted sensor officer or a sensor operator. And the two of them work together to control all the weaponry. And then there will additionally be uh, other crew members that will load, you know, the camp, things like that. But it's a, it is a combat systems officer responsible for, you know, analyzing the fight, figuring out what weapons to employ and employing the weapons. Cool. Okay. Yep. Um, and then there is the, uh, the U-28 that nobody's heard of. It's a, uh, it is a lightweight intelligence surveillance and so this is all unclassified a lightweight intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft that embeds with special operations teams so they will go out they'll you know their tent is right next to the seal team or the green berets or the delta force out at wherever the united states government says it needs for them to be they can operate out of horrible airfields uh, they don't need a lot of airstrip or nice places to be and then they fly overwatch for uh, you know, these special forces teams, and then they will control airspace nearby so they can, uh, you know, hey, there's a B-52 nearby. They can say, hey, B-52, I need you to drop one of these bombs and give me control of it, and I'll guide it into the target and blow up what this team needs blown up. And so it's a, it's a force multiplier for special forces units. Okay. And then uh, you can go to the MC-130, which is... Um, hey, we need, to in, we need to put a whole bunch of troops in country without people knowing about it. Uh, an MC-130 will fly in 50 to 100 feet off the deck and then work with, you know, rangers or whatever kind of hurt we need to put into the country and then get them out as well. Uh, they can also do airborne refueling with helicopters at really low levels. So it's a capable platform. Uh, the last AFSOC platform is the HC-130, which is a search and rescue mission. So that's a C-130, 100% dedicated to going in, finding our dude, getting them out. And, and what's the CISO role in the, on that one? Uh, so there'd be a navigator, essentially, where it's okay. This is the location of the dude. 
This is the location of the things that we don't want to fly nearby. This is how we're going to go in. This is how we're going to get them. And uh, this is how we're going to get out. Okay. Um, yeah, so that would be what they'd be doing. And for the MC-130 as well, be, hey, we're going to navigate. Hey, look at, you know, this would be our opportunity to get into the country. This is how we would get out. And this is where we need to drop off our stuff. Awesome. Cool. So uh, that covers the AFSOC community. Mm -hmm. Then the last one you said is? Navigators. Navigators. All right. So um, there are a few platforms that still have navigators. For the most part, navigators are going away, but there are a few really high value assets that the Air Force has said, nope, we want a navigator on board. Uh, for you know, flying the RC-135, we want to make sure that we're in the airspace we need to be in. So we've got a navigator on board as that additional set of eyes to say, nope, we are where we need to be. And then the AWACS, the airborne radar that does, you know, command and control and battle space, it's got a navigator as well. And then the JSTAR, which is, uh, it's similar to an AWACS, except instead of its radar searching the air, the JSTAR's radar searches the ground, and it is able to provide a ton of intelligence uh, concerning ground-based enemies. And then again, you know, there's a navigator on board making sure that one is where it needs to be. Uh, and then last would be that EC-130. Uh, it also has a navigator to make sure that it's precisely where it needs to be to do the mission that it needs to do. And then kind of the navigator track as to why it exists. One, like it would be specific for those aircraft. They really need to be in a place and they want an extra set of eyeballs. But it's also uh, being able to do, they'll, they'll study a bunch of denied ops where they'll be able to use just dead reckoning and navigate an, uh, an important aircraft to wherever it needs to go, regardless of who's trying to, to mess up their navigation abilities. Okay. Very cool. So that's the, the whole of the CISO community. It, it's far more complicated than I ever expected it to be. Right. And that's, and so it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of a letdown. It's like, okay, you're going to go be a CISO, but I mean, a WISO is as different to an EWO as you know a pilot is to an RPA almost right we, we wear the same wings on our chest but as to what we do day in and day out is super different so the pipeline really does fan out quite a bit interesting cool all right let's talk a little more uh, specifics about the the 12f uh, WISO how, do, how does somebody get that AFSC uh, so, I mean, it's going to be the same as pilot training, where at the end of the syllabus, there is what's called, you know, the drop. Uh, and that is where every member of the class that's completed training now puts in, you know, hey, their dream sheet, where it's like, these are the aircraft that I want to go to. And then based off of class ranking, you're assigned the aircraft that are available. So the number one guy in the class will get his choice of jet if it's available in the Air Force. And then the number two guy would get the next jet available uh, all the way down throughout the class. Um, and so to get to be, you know, a, a 12F or an F-15 WISO, go to CISO training, and then you, you want to fight for the WISO track. And then from there, the WISO track, uh, I can confidently say it is the most work track. That is not the easy track if you're looking for, a, you know, just an easy career in aviation. But it, I certainly think that it was really rewarding and I wouldn't want a different track if I could do it again. And then following, you know, the drop, 
and you know being told hey you're going to go be on an f-15 we have additional top off training where we have to learn air-to-air -air tactics as well as just the air-to-ground tactics and then we have to become uh, more comfortable with actually flying the jet because uh, we're going to be expected to fly to be able to fly in an f-15 so we go from hey you're not flying you're not flying you're not flying to hey now you're flying a t6 in a tactical formation and make it work so it's it's a bit of a learning curve but it's an awesome experience okay uh and the other piece of getting that afsc is also that you have to uh, get picked for rated while you're in your commissioning source uh that's correct yes so definitely put in for the rated board and put in for CISO. Goodness, I wish that, you know, more people would understand just like the awesome opportunities where I'm like eight months away from strapping into a supersonic twin engine 9G jet of awesome that delivers a ton of hurt to the enemy. And nobody knows that you can get that out of the CISO pipeline. They just think pilot, RPA, and it's like, what the heck is a CISO? It's like, man, I'm about to go have an awesome time flying a really cool jet, doing a really cool mission. Yeah, so while you're in your commissioning source, you know, in your junior year as a, if you're in ROTC, for OTS, you're going to be applying specifically to the rated board uh, before uh, you uh, get selected and, and end up at OTS. But when you are putting in your application, if someone uh, puts uh, CISO as their number one, are they going to get it? Uh, very likely. Um, and I mean, it, it's unfortunately just an unknown in the Air Force. And, you know, if you're a new cadet that doesn't know anything about the Air Force, you're applying to OTS and it's like, well, maybe the recruiter knows what a CISO is, maybe. But it's like, okay, they're another guy on the jet. It's probably about as much information as you can get. Okay. They're going to look at your, you know, it's the same kind of mass score where they're going to look at your AFOQT. They're going to look at your commander's ranking. The AFOQT is a specific segment for uh, the NAV or CISO score, but it is, there's not as many CISO positions as there are pilot positions. Right. But again, that's, people just don't know about the career field and the awesome opportunities that it does offer. Okay. But people can pursue CISO directly. It's not something that it, they, they just have to end up there accidentally. They can, they can put that on their dream sheet, on their rated application. They can work directly towards that, as well as once they're at UCT, they can work directly toward one of these different shred outs. They can pursue the WISO directly. They can go after the, the EWO or the or AFSOC. It's not something that just kind of happens accidentally all the time. That's correct. I mean, I think you really can control a lot of your destiny with it. And it's, you know, just about being good at whatever you are supposed to be at the time. Uh, you know, I think one of the tricks is, or one of the mistakes that people make is they think, well, once I'm in the Wizzo track, I'll be really good at that so I can get the F-15. But it's like, nope, you've got to be really good at your academics. You've got to be really good at the DA-20 at IFT. You've got to be good at the basic T-6 stuff in order to get to where you want to go. And you've got to be good at being a cadet, you know, to get what you want out of commissioning. Okay, so it starts early. It's not a just-in-time, a JIT kind of thing. It's a, you know, it's a lifestyle that you're going to set up for yourself early, and and you're going to pursue through the entire time. Right, and that'll be uh, that's a pretty good ticket for success. Yeah, right. Also, talking about getting into this AFSC, what role does your academic degree play? Do you have to have a technical degree? I mean, you're making it sound like it's pretty technical. 
Uh, no, you do not need to have a technical degree. The Air Force is definitely, uh, you know, they, they favor technical degrees for their commissioning programs. Uh, you know, if you're in ROTC, you're probably aware that if you have a technical degree, you're way more likely to get a scholarship. I did not have a technical degree, did not get an Air Force scholarship. But if you don't have a technical degree, you need to be pretty sharp. I, I think every student, you know, at, you know, Dead 855, where I came from, Brigham Young was, was a pretty sharp cadet. But that being said, yeah, my degree was exercise and wellness. You know, one of my good buddies that I'm going through training with, he got the F-15 with me. He went to the Air Force Academy and he studied aeronautical engineering. So he's a brilliant engineering student and I'm a meathead. And I can be just as good in the jet as he is. And I can learn these systems the same way as him. So I wouldn't let that intimidate you if you don't come from a technical background. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, simply studying a technical background makes you more familiar with how can I learn complicated and complex data rapidly. Uh, that would be the only advantage I would think. But you don't need to come from a technical background in order to succeed in the rated career. Okay. So you can study English, you can study history, you know, some of these other uh, humanities type or uh, soft science type degrees and still be able to really succeed and do well in UCT and in the career field. Absolutely. I mean, you just need to be able to learn and be able to own your learning experience. Awesome. Yep. Couldn't agree more. And that's really the case for so much of what we do as officers. Obviously, there are some career fields that require very specific degrees. Like if you're going to be an engineer for the Air Force, you have to have an engineering degree. If you're going to be a doctor, you got to go to med school. But when it comes to a lot of these other ones, specifically these rated career fields, you do not have to have a degree in aerospace engineering to be able to fly a jet or to navigate or operate these various combat systems as you've been describing. Not at all. No, I mean, it, it's training. You, you will be trained to do it. And I mean, anybody can study, anybody can learn this uh, as you apply yourself to it. So yeah, don't ever let that uh, deter you or think, oh, I don't have an engineering or a math degree, therefore I can't do something cool in the Air Force. Like, that's a bunch of baloney. Awesome. Well, good. We have a much better understanding now how we get your AFSC. We understand why it exists. We understand the training pipeline. Now, once you are through all of that and you're out into the operational Air Force doing the thing, which obviously you haven't quite made it there yet. You still got to go get to get to SJ and go through your, your training there. But once you're through all that, who is the customer for your AFSC? Do you exist for the pilot or do you exist for the bad guy or for the combatant commander? Who is your customer? Uh, I think, yeah, I think it would be the combatant commander of the area. And the Strike Eagle is a very desired aircraft by the combatant commanders where it right now is an air to ground workhorse. Um, it can carry, uh, you know, just a ton of payload and deliver it precisely in any environment. Uh, so, you know, yeah, a B-1 can carry more, but it takes so much gas to get it there and keep it there. And, you know, four Strike Eagles can carry the same thing, but they can do it in a much more flexible package. Uh, if something, if you need to blow up a city right now, yeah, a bone is great. But for the close air support stuff, um, the Strike Eagle is an awesome platform to do it, where it just has a bigger payload than the F-16. 
And, you know, you got two brains on board to make sure and double check, make sure, yep, that's where the bomb needs to go and we're effective for that. Uh, and the Air Force has recognized that where the, the Strike Eagle is just being this workhorse. So it's getting a lot of attention and a lot of upgrades. Um, you know, it's getting new engines. It's getting a new, really awesome high-powered radar that's, you know, comparable to the F-22, F-35. Like, it's as good as it gets. Uh, so it is an extremely capable jet that every combatant commander wants. Uh, so, yeah, we exist in the area where we can go fly in and assist whatever force needs it. And, yeah, I mean, the Strike Eagle in particular is flexible in that it can provide, you know, counter air support. It can do air to ground support. It can do, you know, offensive air. Uh, they're able to, you know, carry specific cluster bombs that we can go fly around, you know, near Iranian airspace and say, hey, like your whole naval swarm design, it's like, we've got just the ticket for you, so make sure you behave. Uh, and it is, yeah, just an extremely capable uh, airframe. So all the good guys want it and all the bad guys hope it's not there. Okay, good. Any other customers that, that the CISO exists for or other AFSCs specifically that you uh, work really close with? Obviously, you're going to work very closely with the, with the pilot with that 11 Foxtrot that's uh, in the front seat on the F-15. But who else do you work really close with? You know, I imagine it's just, you know, whatever that air order is, that air tasking order. Hey, we're going to have a group of good guys here and we need you on station, uh, you know, speaking with, you know, Strike Eagle crews about their, their deployments and their times. It is, hey, you know, sometimes you'll go up in your Winchester within 40 minutes or you, you've expended all the ammunition and weaponry that you have. You've dropped every bomb and you fired every bullet and you need to come home for more. And then other times you're there for, you know, 12 hours and you just make sure that everything behaves. But I know that they work in conjunction with special forces. They work in conjunction with conventional army. Uh, they can work as a naval deterrent as well. Uh, as for, I mean, there's going to be your intel shop at every squadron, making sure you're up to speed and you're aware of the current circumstances and threats. But that would be, you know, it's pretty typical. This is combat aviation. Like we're here to support the mission. And whether it's, you know, killing bad guys or just protecting good ones or just being there to make sure the bad guys don't show up. Uh, that, that's the job. And one other caveat, too, is, uh, you know, talking with the Strike Eagle community, uh, there isn't really a difference between the 11F and the 12F, where, you know, getting close to the, if you get close and you look at the wings, you can see the wings look a little different. But in terms of, okay, well, the pilots run it and the CISOs are second fiddle, or the CISOs run it and they plan it and the pilots just do as they're told. Neither of those are true. Uh, it is 100%, both crew members owning 100%. Uh, responsibility for the mission and working together to get it done. So it's a it's a peer environment, not a you know one and one a sub tier uh, aviator status. Okay, so it's like a maverick and a goose, right? Uh, yeah, correct. I just you know hope to survive better than goose did. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we we shouldn't laugh at that, but goose was a backseater in a F fourteen, right? Correct. Yeah, so he was a radar intercept officer. The difference, though, there's no there's no controls in the back of an F-14. You just can look at the radar. There's there's full flight controls in the back of an F-15. Okay, so uh, you're even more on a an equal playing field with the with the front seater, right? Correct. So there's three things that uh, Strike Eagle Wizzo cannot do. You cannot start the engines. You cannot stop the engines, and you cannot fire the cannon. But everything else inside the jet. 
you can do. So yeah, there's the, the cannons triggers up front. That's not moving. That can't go anywhere. And you know, every, every Wizzo dreams of the day where it's, Oh man, like my pilot just, uh, you got incapacitated and I'm bringing the bird home safe. And, uh, but you'd have to run out of gas on the runway and be like, all right, like I can't turn off the engine. So there, there is that limitation, but they do expect you to be a capable aviator. Okay. So on that note, you are fully capable in taking off and landing and doing air refueling and all those kinds of things. So during those, so those are called critical phases of flight. And legally, the pilot in command, so the 11F, is at the controls during that time. You're just going to leave it right there. I am. Yes. <laughs> I know that, you know, both pilots and Wizzos want for the Wizzo to be capable of flying. You know, in the event, it's like, okay, the pilot has his hands full or whatnot. You know, it, you want that capability in the jet. Okay. Yeah, it, it makes total sense that you, you want to have that partnership in place so that when things go south, and they in, inevitably do, mm -hmm. you have two people in that aircraft that are perfectly capable of getting you both home safe. Right. And I think it's, you know, they, they each have a specialty where, and you know, kind of dividing up responsibilities in the Strike Eagle, the pilot's responsibility is flying and then offensive air to air. You know, they've got the mentality of, oh man, like if there's an enemy jet up here, I'm going to kill it and I'm not going to look around for anything else. And then the Wizzo's got a more defensive air to air where they're monitoring and making sure that there's not some airborne threat that's trying to sneak up on us and saying, hey, this is not the fight that we want to pick. Hey, that's, you know, that's this trap or whatnot. Let's not spring it. So we're able to kind of be the defensive looking around while the pilot's going full bulldog, blood in the jowls. And uh, then we, the Wizzo owns the air to ground mission. So, you know, in red flag exercises and stuff like that, it's not unheard of for one strike Eagle to be, you know, engaging an enemy fighter, shooting it down while at the very same time dropping bombs and blowing up ground targets. Uh, so it's it's a cool gig, and we each have our specialty, but we can back each other up. That's good. All right. Let, let's talk about the career progression for the, the 12 Foxtrot. We've already talked a little bit about UCT. We know that you're headed to SJ next for your aircraft-specific training. What happens after that for the next few years and into the wild blue? Got it. Um, just, so one quick addition. Between here, between UCT and Seymour Johnson for the B course, uh, F-15 Wizzos go to IFF, so Intro to Fighter Fundamentals, and that's a, like a two-month course at the, either Texas or Columbus, Mississippi in the T-38 to, you know, to learn basic fighter maneuvers, air combat maneuvers, and, you know, how to conduct air-to-ground attacks and things like that. So it, you get that kind of 3D battle space uh, air combat experience, or at least context. And then, yeah, once you complete the B course, and then you get three more months of mission qual training to make sure that you know how to employ every kind of weapon and every kind of scenario, boom, you're good to go. At that point, you show up, you fly uh, pretty much five days a week, and you're whatever kind of focus the squadron has at the time. Where it's like, hey, for the next two weeks, we're going to focus really on our low levels. And for the next two weeks, we're going to focus on our counter air patrol. And then next two weeks, we're going to focus on our you know, flying into denied environment and dropping from this altitude or whatnot. Uh, so you're able to sharpen every kind of skill that the Strike Eagle has to have. Um, 
to make sure that you're not just a one-trick pony. And then, you know, you deploy. Uh, generally, right now, the deployment cycle is you'll have about a six-month deployment and be home for about 18 months. And then that's that's kind of the life for as a captain. Uh, and then it's kind of standard Air Force officer progression where you would have things like SOS, Squadron Officer School, Air Command and Staff College. And then, you know, after probably two ops assignments, that's when you get into the holy smokes, you can go anywhere in the Air Force. Um, whether it's you're going off to advanced PME like SAS and you're going to go do a staff job at the Pentagon or nope, I want to stiff arm all of that and I just want to stay in the cockpit as long as I can and turn down those opportunities so I can just keep flying. You know, kind of both of those doors are open to you. Uh, you've got, you know, you can, you can go to the weapons school as a, as a WIZO, you know, teach at the weapons school as well or just be the weapons officer for your squadron. Um, but really it's your training, you're training to all the different kinds of threats. You have to be good at air to air, you have to be good at air to ground and you have to be good at, you know, defending positions and being ready to deploy when Uncle Sam says they need you to go there. Awesome. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit more about the CGO experience since that's going to be the, the first thing that you will get to as soon as you're done with the B course. So your opportunity for leadership or supervision, when does that first take place uh, as a CGO or or even as a new major? So yeah, I'd say perhaps as a senior captain, you'd be looking kind of at that flight commander font. Um, but really, especially with such a long pipeline, when you show up after the B course and your mission called, you're gonna be something like a snacko uh, because they just need you to keep flying and keep getting good at your job. Where, I mean, the, especially with the Strike Eagle where there's just so many missions, you know, they just want you to get that experience. And then, you know, when you're maybe a senior captain getting close to that point, that's when you'll start having the additional duties such as scheduling or stand eval uh, or, you know, hey, you're going to go and be the exec for, you know, this commander or something like that. But really, as a CGO and the Strike Eagle, priority is fly, 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 because you're never good enough and you always need to start getting better. So kind of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, if it's just an air-to-air -air sortie, you show up about three and a half hours prior to takeoff for you to do your mission planning, go through your brief, going out, you know, stepping out to the jet, and then going off flying your sortie, coming back in your debrief. Uh, your debrief's going to be long. The Strike Eagle community is known for its long debriefs uh, because there's so much that they've got to go over. Um, and so you're going to stay there and debrief. And so it's going to be a 10 probably like a 10, 11 hour day, uh, but it starts really early where you're not getting home at like nine o'clock at night. Uh, you start early and you're home for dinner. And then if it's an air to ground, instead of showing up three and a half hours before, you show up four hours before for you to plan the additional ground strike that would take place in addition to the air to air. And then, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, go up, fly, make mistakes, go to the debrief, figure out what you screwed up in the debrief, fix it, go up, fly, make mistakes, debrief, find it, and just continue to, to improve and improve. Okay. So your responsibility out of B course as a first lieutenant, brand new captain, is 
becoming the a technical expert on your airframe and your specific responsibilities within it. Your opportunities for supervision, for that more typical leadership type thing that we discuss and train for in our commissioning sources really doesn't take place until you're a senior captain, which is somewhere around six, seven, eight years into your active duty service, maybe even and not until a little bit later when you promote to major and then have to fill a, you know, a director of operations type position, uh, a scheduler, right? you mentioned exec. That's typically when you're going to be put into those more leadership type positions. That's correct. You know, we're, you know, a good buddy of mine, we commissioned together and he commissioned into maintenance and, you know, day one, he had something like 120 airmen that he was leading. That's not the case in the, you know, the CISO community uh, or the, you know, the strike eagle community where it's just, Hey, you've got a complicated job to do and it takes you a long time to get really good at it. So focus on that first. Yeah. So Let's, let's focus on that for just a, a minute. How do you feel about that career progression, knowing that you are an officer in the Air Force, you have been trained to be a leader, but you don't necessarily get that opportunity until you're almost halfway through your career? I, I think I really understand it. Where, so I mean, in Secretary Mattis's book, Call Sign Chaos, he talks like one of the things a leader needs to be good at is be brilliant in the basics. The Flying community is all officers. It's not like other communities where you might just have, you know, hey, here's a hundred enlisted folks that you can lead from now on, and they're going to be the subject matter experts, and you're just going to work as a, as a leader and a supervisor to meet their needs and make sure they can do the mission. Uh, as a rated officer, that's you. You have to be good at that. And if you're no good at flying the jet, if you're not capable of or you, your basic responsibilities, you're not really going to be a leader that will be looked up to and trusted in the community. So I understand absolutely why it needs to happen, where if you just show up, hey, guys, I'm, I'm mission qualified, but I'm the worst flyer here. Now you have to do as I say. Uh, that, that would not work out well for, for any member. And I think all of us understand that in the rated community. Uh, I think one thing that might perhaps be a downfall for that is I feel like some of that leadership and interpersonal skills can be a perishable skill, where we spend so much time focused on, hey, I just am going to be a technical expert you put me in that jet and I'll make it dance and I'll kill every bad guy that needs to be killed and I'll execute this mission. And then holy smokes, I forgot how to take care of my people. So I think, you know, Chief Goldfein is certainly recognizing that and saying, hey, we want to have a more people-centric Air Force. And so I think that's been, you know, steps have been taken to kind of mitigate that, that downfall. But uh, yeah, as you just don't have the leadership opportunity because you're not prepared for it because you've got to be better at your job. Yeah, and I think it's important to reflect on what it is that the Air Force actually values in its air, in its officers. The number one thing th that we need from our officers is their ability to execute the mission. And in some circumstances, that is going to require your ability to lead a group of people to get the mission done. You mentioned the uh, maintenance is a great example. The other support functions are going to uh, also have to lead their enlisted airmen and civilians toward the successful execution of the mission. But in the rated community, as you're describing, th the execution of the mission may only require just a, a couple officers and a couple of enlisted air crew in, in order to get that mission done. 
And that's okay. That again, the priority number one has to be the execution of the mission. And if you're not good at doing it, if you're not proficient, if you're incapable of flying or correctly operating your aircraft, then the mission is going to suffer. So I agree with you. There is a lost opportunity to utilize the the leadership skills that you develop through your commissioning source. But at the same time, priority number one has to be on the, the successful execution of the mission. And sometimes that doesn't require other people to get it done. Sometimes you just have to be a leader of one and a leader of yourself. Absolutely. It, it doesn't really matter what you say if you don't know what you're talking about. Yep. Got to be a master of your craft. And then further on in the in the things that the Air Force values in its officers, yes, the, the second one is leading people. But as we just discussed, that, that may be just leading yourself and leading, leading up, leading your commander, making sure that the people above you are, are being taken care of. You don't necessarily have to be a direct supervisor over other airmen to be a leader. You can lead up like that. And beyond that, the Air Force still needs you to manage resources and improve the unit. Every officer in any career field, no matter what their position, can definitely pursue those things. I'm sure that in your, your flying experience, in going through the, the training so far, you've had to learn how to manage resources, which includes not just manpower, but facilities and equipment and your time. I mean, you have to know what you're dealing with, what, what your assets and liabilities are in order uh, to successfully accomplish the mission. Right. And then even, yeah, when they say, okay, you're not in a leadership position, it's like, yes, I don't supervise or lead people. But I mean, even, you know, day one in training, okay, how can you work well with others? How can you influence the culture of your, of your peers and your classmates? Are you a positive influence? Or are you a negative influence? Do you make people better? Or do you make people worse? Are you prepared or are you unprepared? So, you know, being proactive, you can, there's still plenty of opportunities to, to make an impact on others uh, for, for good. Yep. So we, we discussed quite a bit about the, uh, the career field why CISOs exists, uh, a little bit about the progression and what it's like going through the, the technical training. What we're missing so far is, you know, some good stories. I, I haven't heard you say yet, you know, there I was, I was inverted. Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit that you, you were going to take that three second moment to just soak it all in. But, you know, let, let's hear some, you know, some favorite highlights about uh, your time in the Air Force so far. Well, I mean, 100% flying is wonderful. Uh, throughout flying training, I mean, it is, it is absolutely a fire hose, uh, regardless of your prior preparation. Uh, it is as much as you can handle. And if you can handle where you're at, the instructors will just throw more on you until they find out how much you can handle. Uh, but it is important to take a moment and just breathe, look outside, and say, holy smokes, that sunrise is beautiful over the Gulf right now. Where one of my yeah, as we came back to the T6, after learning all the Wizzo tactics in the T1, I was flying with, you know, I have a wingman. He's about 10 feet away from me. And we started going through these rolls, loops, maneuvers. And so I'm genuinely upside down looking at this beautiful aircraft. And it, we've got a heritage bird painted in World War II invasion theme. So it's got the invasion stripes. Looks like a P-51 right off my right wing. And I see him. 
and there's just this beautiful sunrise coming over the Gulf clouds that just, you know, create a beautiful border for this whole event. It's just, I cannot believe that I'm getting paid to do this. And then, you know, later on in that same sortie, we're, we're having kind of a mock dog fight. And so I'm looking behind and seeing where he is and I'm living out that dream where it's like, holy smoke, seven o'clock low break, right. And I'm screaming into the, the comms and you make the mistake once of not positioning yourself correctly to pull G's where you get, you know, just kind of stuck in the cockpit for a moment. Um, but then you learn how to, how to handle it. And it's just, wow, I'm, I'm genuinely living every boy's dream of going out and just flying in this most outstanding fashion and being able to just have a ton of fun doing it. We get here, we get to fly with the blue angels. So I, oh yeah, I, yeah. The Blue Angels are stationed out of Naval Air Station Pensacola. So I was actually working through a uh, an unsafe gear malfunction. It wasn't an emergency. We never declared an emergency, but we had to scrap the rest of our mission. And we were holding overhead the field at about two thousand feet, and we're just working through our checklist and okay, how can we remedy this situation? And then over the radio, Pensacola approach, Blue Angel one, request rapid recovery, runway seven. It's like, man, I've got the best seat to see the Blue Angels come screaming in as I'm just over a thousand feet above. I'm watching them come in for the pattern. And so that's an awesome opportunity that I've had. But uh, I think, you know, if you're going into one of these rated pipelines, whether it's UPT or UCT, yes, it's a fire hose. It's a ton of work. It's a ton of stuff to chew on on every sortie. But, you know, take those fanboy seconds and just look outside and say, holy smokes. Like, this is awesome. And it's such a small number of people that even get the opportunity to go and have that experience. Cool. Good stuff. So I want to talk now about your development as an officer outside of your career field. What books have you been reading? What classes you've been taking? What, what other things have, been, have you been doing outside of your training to continue developing as an officer? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice... Uh, slow pitch softball opportunity to speak about reading. Uh, so reading is something that I became really passionate about towards the end of college. And then it was really nice once I was out of college to have more time to read and it's become something I've become that's really a part of who I am. So since commissioning, I've been reading on average about a book a week and it's been an absolute game changer where what kind of relating it to flight training it was frustrating to see students who struggled talking to other struggling students about how to improve while an instructor is just sitting at a desk able to help, but the student's not going to the instructor who actually knows what he's talking about. Instead, the struggling student generally stays asking other struggling students what to do. And it's like, well, you're going to be stuck until you go get information from somebody who knows what's actually going on. And reading gives you that opportunity to learn from the very best in the field, where the very best uh, thinkers, whether it's militarily or professionally or relationships, um, they've written down answers to these problems. And all we have to do is go read. And it's, you know, it's 10 bucks for a book. And it's, it's so easy to go and do where, I mean, a few things that really helped me, you know, reading books like Deep Work by Cal Newport and Peak. Uh, like the new science of mastery, uh, these things, I feel like they genuinely help my performance where I'm able to go into work and accomplish more 
quality work in less time than my peers who just don't have that same skill acquired through reading. And then whether it's, you know, leadership, it's like, okay, people have already written about this topic. And it's not just some dude who is like, well, I worked construction once and I had four people with me and this is what I found effective. It's like, you can go read about leadership from Winston Churchill who you know, held together the free world until America could finally come in and, and assist. But you, know, you can learn about you know, why this fight is important and why these principles matter. Uh, you can get the motivation from books. Uh, so I've actually, um, I kind of set myself up for it. I've been running a, a book club, an unofficial book club for the squadron. And I asked the group commander if he had a book recommendation and then very quickly, my squadron commander got word and asked me if I wanted to do a book club. And it's like, well, my squadron commander just asked me if I wanted to do a book club. So here I am with the book club. But yeah, I can't say enough about reading and I can talk, you know, for hours just on the specific virtue of reading. And I can talk for more hours on specific books that have been uh, kind of game changing in my perspective and capabilities. Yeah. That's one of the things that I feel like, our commissioning sources really fall behind on is teaching reading, especially professional reading. Right. As you've described, uh, learning to gain knowledge and, uh, and understanding from the experts that have, have already solved all the problems that we're dealing with, or if they haven't solved them, they've at least been there before and they've dealt with it in some uh, form or fashion. So uh, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that reading is going to be one of the things that will help uh, any one of us develop more and faster in our profession as, as officers in the Air Force. So on that note, uh, you mentioned Deep Work, you mentioned Peak. What are, what are some of your favorite books that you've read recently or ever that uh, you would recommend to our audience anybody that is planning on being an officer in the air force or has already commissioned. Got it. Um, so, I mean, I think those self-development books are, are useful. I think they serve a purpose. Like I, I really love, I think highly of seven habits of highly effective people, how to win friends and influence people. Both of those are excellent. I really like 12 rules for life. I picked it up just so I could defend, you know, kind of traditional values without, you know, using religion as a justification but wanting to get more of the i just want some current scientific data on why this is a good idea and i was actually really blown away by the book as to how applicable it was and how helpful it was i think it's important to understand at least a basic understanding of finances where if you don't understand how your money works you're not going to be very capable of being a good officer if you're stressed out about whether or not you're going to have a home or a car or whatnot uh, so i'd recommend the richest man in babylon to everybody that's a really short, simple book, and it's not full of kind of the hate that most finance books are, where it's, oh, you're an idiot, or you're an idiot, or you're an idiot. Um, I think Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell is borderline required reading for an American citizen. Uh, you'll certainly be, in my mind, a better American and a better equipped citizen uh, having read that. I think it's important to understand kind of the, the heritage, the military history that we have. I think 1776 is a great book, understanding kind of just how shaky the foundation was, but how worth fighting it was. 
and how important that, that period of time was. Battle Cry of Freedom on the Civil War was outstanding. The personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, but General Grant was a, an amazing military leader. Uh, I've read probably a half dozen biographies of Winston Churchill and his memoirs of World War II. Uh, again, just if you want to study leadership, you can study Winston Churchill, and he'll also give you a great breakdown of military history. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for literature, of all things, not just holding the free world together. Man, I think in terms of leadership, leaders eat last, that's Simon Sinek. I think there's good value to that and understanding that your people are just as important as you know, skill or ability or resources, that your people are one of the resources that you have to manage. Uh, there's a good one, uh, The Mission, The Men and Me by Pete Blaber. He was the Delta Force commander for the kind of the very beginning of Afghanistan and Operation Anaconda. That's a really good short leadership book. Hal Moore on leadership. So Hal Moore was the commander of the first conventional battle in uh, Vietnam, made famous by the book you know, We Were Soldiers Once and Young in the movie We Were Soldiers. There's a short leadership book of his that's really good. Uh, Turn the Ship Around, that's on the chief of staff reading list. Again, not too long and really effective, just simple principles of leadership uh, that I think are good. And uh, I think it's important to understand Air Force heritage where uh, Masters of the Air, so that's about the 8th Air Force, you know, the boys who bombed Berlin. So that's both bombers and fighters bringing the fight to the Nazis in World War II. I mean, if, you, if you're interested in combat aviation, there's Fighter Pilot, Memoirs of Robin Old, Boyd, Fighter Pilot Who Changed the Art of War by Robert Corum. Uh, there's the Air Force Way of War. It talks about how we started to adapt our strategies after our training was letting down our aircraft and our air crews in Vietnam and how we became more lethal. That one's really, you know, that's kind of a, maybe a little more geeky in the weeds about how we became to be a more lethal fighting force. Uh, Viper pilot, uh, that's Dan Hampton. Dan Hampton's written quite a bit about combat aviation. He was an F-16 pilot, and you can read his ego on every page, but he's got some really cool stories that kind of back it up. So Viper pilot's cool about what it's like to actually fly into harm's way and come out of it. Um, Hunter Killers is about, you know, we're going to go find Sam's and kill him, kind of that, that wild weasel mission. Lords of the Sky breaks down air combat from World War I to today. So those are all, I think that all adds a good context to know, like this is the profession of arms and this is combat aviation. This is the group of people that I'm trying to join and that I am, you know, going to be with. Like theirs is the legacy that's now been trusted to me. So I think there is real value in terms of understanding particularly American military history or heritage. Wow. This is what has enabled us to be the most powerful and capable force in, in history. And what does it take to, to stand shoulder to shoulder with these people? So reading just expands your world and, and it helps give you the experience that you don't have as a lieutenant uh, or even as a captain where it's, you know, I don't have a ton of experience, but I have augmented my experience through studying the experience of others and learning their lessons. Yeah, at the very least, it's at least going to help you ask the right questions. Right. You may not have the answers. They may, they may not be able to solve it for you, but they're at least going to give you a perspective so that you can, you can ask the right questions about the situation that you're involved in. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a little frustrating when you see somebody struggling and it's like, well, like there are resources at your disposal to take care of this issue and you're not taking advantage of it. Um, and so that opportunity to just develop yourself in as focused a manner as you want. Uh, so yeah, all the information in the world is essentially available to you. And if you're not taking advantage of it, that's on you. And as an officer, that, that's, that's kind of bad form in my mind where it's like, well, you could have been prepared for this circumstance, but you elected not to. So that's, I, I, I try to keep that mindset where instead of reaching a position that I haven't prepared for, trying to prepare for whatever circumstances I can by getting that context from history. Yeah. And I mean, that list of books that you just rambled off off the top of your head is awesome. <laughs> but I want our audience to to understand that they don't have to read all of those books in order to be effective as officers. They don't even have to read any of those books, but they should read something. Yes. And I think, you know, there's a place for fiction too. Like I read, I like Lord of the Rings. I think that's a fantastic story of, you know, good versus evil, which is, you know, I'm a fanboy. I believe that's the fight that I'm engaged in good versus evil. And you can see, okay, what motivates people to actually do that? Is it easy to do the right thing? Not always, you know, or often it isn't, but it can be motivating to learn from that. But I do think, you know, yeah, you don't have to be full geek and reading into the weeds and, but yeah, the opportunity to read will certainly, you know, edify you and make you a more capable individual. Yeah. So to all of our listeners out there, pick up a book. We don't necessarily care what it is, but you should read something. Awesome stuff. Let's talk about mentorship. Yeah, as you uh, develop that capability and that knowledge of improvement for yourself, how have you been sharing that with others or how have others been sharing that with you? Um, well, I think the most valuable mentor that I found, he was actually one of my first squadron commanders here. Uh, he was an F-15 Wizzo. And so I wanted to, hey, tell me all about that jet and if I want that job. And But what I appreciated and what I found effective about his mentoring was that he treated me as if I'd already earned it, where... I feel like sometimes, you know, hey, I want, tell me about the F-15. Tell me about the F-15. It's like, well, once you've tracked Wizzo, come find me and I'll talk to you about the F-15. It's like, well, I want to know now that I can figure out if I even want to go down that road. And so I think that that's a valuable thing with mentoring and that, you know, talking with cadets, you know, it's like a cadet, maybe they haven't even said, yes, I want to be in the Air Force, but treating them as if that's going to be a chief of staff in 20 years or something where it's, hey, what kind of information would best help you? Like what principles would best help you at this stage and how would you get to where you want to go? Uh, so I think being open, regardless of where the person's at, uh, that, that was a good lesson that I've learned here where like from the very first day of training, my, my squadron commander was totally fine spending a lot of time at, talking to me and sharing his experiences with the F-15. In terms of being able to reach out and mentor others, I certainly think within the class, it's important where it's like, hey, making sure that you're available to help those around you, help your peers, you know, uh, that's where you're going to have the biggest circle of influence is those that you actually see every day. And you've got a better feeling and understanding of, oh man, is, is John tired? Is, is Tyler falling behind? Is, you know, dang, Ryan's got everything uh, put together. What can I learn from him and how can I help others? So keeping your eyes open and how other people are doing and, and being able to to influence them. As I said, I enjoyed running that book club. God, I've got 
you know, a few more meetings of that before I leave, but being able to share those lessons with others and see them benefit from it. And then hopefully, you know, reaching out and being able to give some of this information to cadets too, that they can have information that, that I didn't when I was a cadet. Yeah. So on that note, how can cadets or other uh, people who are interested in connecting with you get in touch? Uh, yes. Yeah, so probably the best thing to do would be getting my email. That's just Joseph R. Langford at gmail.com. Uh, I mean, I probably can just be written down uh, where, whatever this podcast episode is posted. I'll make sure that that's available. Okay. You're in our Facebook group. They can also contact you there. Yeah, absolutely. So I can talk all things CISO. I, I'm familiar with, uh, I've got people in every one of those networks and, and career fields from the CISO pipeline. Awesome. Well, good. I've got one more question before we wrap, wrap this up, but before I ask it, is there anything else that you want to add to this interview, to the knowledge about the CISO career field, what it, what it's like being an officer in the Air Force, anything that you would be you think would be valuable for our audience? Anything that's not covered, CISO is a, is a worthwhile pursuit. Nobody's heard of it. It's a super cool job with a lot of awesome opportunities. And I'd probably say that every Wizzo is a CISO, but not every CISO is a Wizzo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a good way to put it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right, Joey, last question for you. All right. What does it mean to be an officer? Uh, I think it means being good enough at your job that you're not just worried about your own stuff, but you can lift others as well. Uh, where to be good is the bare, exp the bare minimum, but really uh, to be an officer means that you've got your stuff so well squared away that now you can be responsible for others. So be capable, have good judgment, be involved, and you know, lift as you're needed. Awesome. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, but I'm also interested to see how that definition changes for you as you progress through your career, as you move to SJ and uh, you then become, you know, fully mission qualified, you know, you go on your first deployment, you come back. So let's, let's keep this line of communication open. Let's have you back uh, later on and, and see how, your development as an officer progresses and your understanding of what it means to be an officer changes along the way. Sounds good. Thanks All very right. much. Thanks, Joey. We'll uh, catch you on the flip side. Got it. Thanks. Colin, awesome interview. Man, Joey did a great job of breaking that down, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, so helpful that, that he had just finished UCT at the time. W when we did the interview, he hadn't quite earned his wings. He since has, but how awesome that we were able to catch him right at the peak of his knowledge on UCT. Yeah. So he'll be doing the F-15E, the Strike Eagle. That's awesome. Uh, great mission. I have my OTS roommate. That's what he's doing. He's had a lot of deployments, a lot of success. So that's yeah, an exciting time. Yeah. So let's share some of our thoughts on, you know, some of the things that he highlighted from UCT. What, what are you thinking, Reed? Yeah. So one of the things that I keyed in on, he's already caught the vision of how important professional reading is. And I promise we did not specifically find Joey Langford because he's a reader. But again, it points to this pattern, right? Leaders are readers. And we want to emphasize that. So just shameless plug, pick up a book, start where you are, and uh, let's develop ourselves. Yeah. And he actually didn't pick up that habit until he got onto active duty. You know, he it described in the interview that 
during his time as a cadet, you know, he wasn't reading very much. It wasn't until he got onto active duty that he realized that there was that knowledge gap and it was something that he wanted to, to fix. Now he, he's jumped in f- full bore, not saying that everybody has to read a book a week, every, you know, just like he's been doing, but definitely what you're saying, if you want to improve your leadership capabilities, your ability of serving effectively as an officer in the air force in any capacity, absolutely pick up a book. Yeah. And I I think the last thing that I wanted to talk about is just what a broad field this is. Uh, And, you know, if you think about the history and he went, he went into good depth on and broke that all down for us. But, you know, these used to be a, a lot of different jobs, folks doing different things based on the technology of the day and how it's all kind of been boiled into this one thing. But there's still a lot of options out there. So if you want to fly on the rivet joint, if you want to fly, you know, strike eagles, if you want to fly. Uh, special operations. I mean, there's just a lot of really cool stuff out there. So I'm excited that he broke it down and gave a a really good description of it. So hopefully some folks in the audience can think about that as a future option for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And what I like that he highlighted, you know, he's bringing attention to really an kind of like an unsung career field. Like we mentioned at the top of the episode, most people, including Joey, know very little about what CISOs do for the Air Force, both operationally and and leadership in general. But he highlighted that usually people think about pilots being the ones who are the tip of the spear. They're the ones that are dropping the bombs and bringing the fight to the enemy. But really, especially in, in a crew-type aircraft, anytime that there's more than one person on the on the aircraft and a CISO is on board it's really the CISO that is providing the operational effects yeah exactly right in this situation the pilot kind of just becomes the bus driver right <laughs> and i mean that with all the love in my heart but yeah sometimes the it's the backseaters the back end that are actually delivering the effects yeah so if you want to to be someone who is hands-on, actually engaged in bringing the fight to the enemy, maybe being a CISO is a, is a direction that you, that you want to more fully consider. So we want to give a huge thanks and shout out to Joey for taking the time to offer this information to us. Again, we'll link his contact information in the show notes and you can also engage him in the Facebook group. He's active there, especially uh, on the aspect of professional reading. He's taken the responsibility on himself to uh, engage people within the group on sharing different types of books uh, and making sure that we are all uh, engaged in the process of uh, and participating in, in the activity of professional reading. That concludes this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. 